to uh, start our, our uh, as we begin a new book, passage is Nahum, or Nahum, depending on how you articulate it. So, to be honest with you, the beginning, starting a new book, a new series is, I I love it and I hate it. How many have ever been there where you love something and hate something at the same time? So, the reason is this. How many of you love to minister to other people? One person, two. Okay. If we, and yeah, these, I'm going to use this all the whole time, so I don't know if, I, I can't tell. The reality is, I can't see behind me, and you can't see behind you. Right? <laughs> that, and that causes issues. The reality, because I have no idea what it looks like. So, since we're all family here, if there's something going on behind me, just you know, wave your hands, become Baptocostal, and say, hey, come on, look behind you. All right? So the reason I love it is because I love history. And I love context. The reason I hate it is I, it, it's really hard to give all the historical grammatical context of a book and then make application in preaching. How many understand that? It's very difficult, but the reality is without the understanding of the historical context, you're shooting blanks out in the air for as far as application. You, you just can't do that. You have to have the historical context. And um, that's so very important. Just like I asked you do, you, do you like serving people? Well, you can't serve people well without their context. You can't. Uh, matter of fact, you could hurt and hinder somebody without knowing the context of their lives. And we talked about that last week, but before we begin Nahum, give me one word that depicts Jonah. One word. What is it? I mean, there's lots of words, but just give me one. A man. <laughs> what? Foolish. So we immediately focus on Jonah, right? What else? Mercy. Jonah's full of mercy. Not Jonah himself. The book of Jonah. What else? Context. I mean, without the context, man, you can put the woke movement right into Jonah. And they do. What else? Selfish. Good. Grace. Judgment. Fish. Repentance. Good. Forgiveness. All those are, those are great. I just want you interaction here, all right? Praise the Lord for that. Well, Nahum, Nahum is, how many have ever read Nahum? How many even knew there was a book called Nahum? So Nahum is a, I think it's three chapters, and after I have been digesting it over and over again, God's mercy to his people. If you've read Nahum and now you're reading the, the, the caption on the bottom, you're going, you're nuts. Right? Because what's Nahum about? Complete judgment. Absolute, complete judgment. And here's the reality. Without judgment, how do you know the mercies of God? You can't. But God judges, and who does He judge? The wicked. 
Why? Because people are already judging the righteous. True? But Nahum is, frankly, all about judgment. We'll get to that in a second, but it's God's mercy to his people. God loves you. He does. He loves you. Last week and Wednesday night, Mr. Gaiman did this Wednesday night, we vehemently expressed the truth of context. Context is king in interpreting Scripture. And context is king in serving people where they're at. Today we begin a very similar book to Jonah, but also the complete opposite. And again, context is king. Matter of fact, Barker, the New American commentator, says this, every person and every event is set within a historical context without which neither the person nor the event can be understood. And so, as we are going to jump into Nahum, we're not going to just jump into Nahum. We're going to find out what sets Nahum in its context that's helpful to understanding and interpreting the text. This book of Nahum focuses on God's working, especially on Nineveh. This is why Jonah and Nahum are very important to each other. And we'll see that quickly. I've got two videos. This is not normal. We don't normally do this. Again, I love it and hate it. But here's a quick five-minute, I think, video on overall Nahum. In today's video, we're going to survey and briefly summarize the book of Nahum. Then afterwards, as always, I'll share some helpful resources. So stick around until the end. As for the author, the author of the book of Nahum identifies himself as Nahum. In the Hebrew, counselor or comforter, the Elkishite, chapter 1, verse 1. There are many theories as to where that city was, though there is no conclusive evidence. One such theory is that it refers to the city later called Capernaum, which literally means the village of Nahum at the Sea of Galilee. As for the date of writing, given the limited amount of information that we know about Nahum, the best we can do is narrow the time frame in which the book of Nahum was written to between 663 and 612 BC. Two events are mentioned that help us to determine these dates. First, Nahum mentions Thebes, no Ammon, in Egypt falling to the Assyrians, 663 BC, in the past tense, so it already happened. Second, the remainder of Nahum's prophecies came true in 612 BC. Now, for the purpose of writing. Nahum did not write this book as a warning or call to repentance for the people of Nineveh. God had already sent them the prophet Jonah 150 years earlier with this promise of what would happen if they continued in their evil ways. The people at that time had repented, but now lived just as bad, if not worse, than they did before. The Assyrians had become absolutely brutal in their conquest, hanging the bodies of their victims on poles and putting their skin on the walls of their tents, among other atrocities. Now, Nahum was telling the people of Judah to not despair because God had pronounced judgment and the Assyrians would soon be getting just what they deserved. Here are some key verses. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. Nahum chapter 1, verse 14a. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. Nahum chapter 1, verse 15a. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. See also Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, and Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Nahum chapter 2, verse 13a. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? Here's a brief summary. Nineveh once had responded to the preaching of Jonah and turned from their evil ways to serve the Lord God. But 150 years later, Nineveh returned to idolatry, violence, and arrogance. Name chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 
Once again, God sends one of his prophets to Nineveh, warning of judgment in the form of the destruction of their city, exhorting them to repentance. Sadly, Ninevites did not heed Nahum's warning, and the city was brought under the dominion of Babylon. As for foreshadowings, Paul uses shades of the imagery of Nahum chapter 1 verse 15 in Romans chapter 10 verse 15 in regard to the ministry of the Messiah and the apostles. It may also be understood of any minister of the gospel whose business it is to preach the gospel of peace. God has made peace with sinners by the blood of Christ and has given his people the peace that transcends all understanding. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. The preacher's work is also to bring glad tidings of good things, KJV, such as reconciliation, righteousness, pardon, life, and eternal salvation by a crucified Christ. The preaching of such a gospel and bringing such news make their feet beautiful. The imagery here is of one who runs to others, eager and joyful to proclaim the good news. Now for some practical application. God is patient and slow to anger. He gives every country time to repent of sin and follow him as Lord. But he is not mocked. Anytime a country turns away from him and rejects righteousness, evil results, and he steps in with judgment. This was true for Assyria, and it will be true for any nation today. As Christians, it is our duty to stand up for biblical principles and proclaim Christ, for it is only in repentance and in the life-changing message of the gospel that any country can find hope. Want to learn more? Subscribe so you don't miss the next video. Visit gotquestions.org. Judgment is at hand, and it's about all these countries that go wicked, and God will judge them. And by the way, there is a great application to that, and we'll see that shortly. The themes of Jonah were mercy, like we talked about, God, repentance, judgment, context. The themes of Nahum will be God, judgment, and context. God is not happy. He's very angry. And he comes after Nineveh with an iron fist. The iron fist of Babylon uses another wicked country. So, what's the difference between Jonah and Nahum? And that's an important question. Because they're sisters. They, as one stops, the next one comes. Does that make sense? And we'll see that timeline shortly next. But I want to give you one more video, very short. It's actually shorter than this one of how those two interact. Because Jonah didn't want mercy given to Nineveh, and God saved them and had mercy on them. But now, 150 years later, he's absolutely going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Judgment does come. So, in reality, Jonah was right in proclaiming judgment on Nineveh 150 years before it happened. And now, here's Nahum, and it's going to happen during his watch, actually. We are not to read the book of Jonah as God being in a good mood, so the people of Nineveh are fortunate on that particular day nor are we to read the book of Nahum as God waking up on the wrong side of the bed and therefore the people of Nineveh paid dearly. Exodus 32 verses 6 and 7 present a beautiful description of God who is both compassionate and one who judges sin. As you read through the Bible, you will find that you cannot put God into a box. At times, God will surprise you with his compassion. At other times, he will surprise you with his wrath. Although God never compromises his character, he cannot be calculated. Second, we can learn from the comparison of the moral of each prophecy. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, we learn that the compassion of the Lord goes deeper than any of us could ever imagine. He is so compassionate that we and our fallen selves might not like it. However, in Nahum chapter 3, we may also cringe at the unleashing of God's judgment against Nineveh. He is so vengeful that we and our fallen selves might not like it either. God is holy or other than us. He is both comprehensible and incomprehensible, and God is no respecter of persons. 
It is very interesting that sin is not mentioned very much. The book of Nahum zeroes in on judgment. We can also note the comparison of the opportunity for the response of Nineveh to the person of God. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, we find that an important feature of the book is their response. Nineveh apparently turns to the Lord and his anger is averted. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 14, and in chapter 3, verse 19, we learn that there is no opportunity for Nineveh to respond. Their judgment is fixed and certain. A final comparison of the two books is the focus of the book. The book of Jonah is not really focused on the Ninevites. It is really about him as a prophet. Whereas the book of Nahum is clearly focused on the Ninevites, from beginning to end, they are in God's view. All right, makes sense. Those are just quick things that hopefully help. And also it tells you that I'm not just blowing smoke up here. All right. So the timeline of Jonah is found when <clears throat> we don't know exactly when he was there. What we do know is it's before the destruction of Israel um, that he does that, which we'll talk about earlier. But we find it somewhere between 800 and 750 B.C. Somewhere during that time is where Jonah prophesied to Nineveh. In Nahum, it starts basically at 722. That's an important date that we'll get to eventually here. We, we see Nahum is going to be preaching to Nineveh because they are on the verge of being absolutely wiped out by Babylon, who is in turn going to go and wipe out who? Judah. There's a new king on the block. You know, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, do they not? And right now, at this moment in history, during Jonah and to the beginning of Nahum, you have Assyria is in charge. They're the big man on the block. Egypt's in a funk, if you will. But Assyria is king. And if you look at these, you'll see 794, roughly 800. All the way down to 722. That's Jonah's timeline. And then Nahum picks up with 722 and goes on. <clears throat> One of the best ways to see that is in this picture. As you can see from 800 to 600, basically, right in here. Matter, would it be easier for me to use a, a laser or, or can you see my pointer? Not very well. All right, so here's Assyria. They're in charge. Roughly from 800 to 625, and actually there's a specific date, and we'll get there. But Assyria is in charge, and in that you have the north and southern kingdoms. Is that important to know? Yeah, the kingdom is divided. There's civil war going on, by the way, literally. Judah alone stands. Why? Because right here, what happens? Israel falls to Nineveh. So between this point and this point is where Jonah preached to the Ninevites that judgment's coming. But instead, God gave them mercy. And the reason we know, we now know why God gave them mercy. It wasn't because they were such great people. It's because God wanted to use them to do what? You need to discipline, and I'm going to use you to discipline Israel. You are going to judge Israel. You are going to be the tool that I'm going to use. By the way, it's very interesting. You have Jonah, Micah, and then you have Nahum back on this back point because it, uh, Assyria falls, Babylon becomes in, and this is where Nahum was, was uh, talking about what he is writing. Now, there is an issue between, let me ask you, did the Gospels, were they... Are they in, like, let's say, the Gospel of Matthew? Is that, like, written in AD 50 to AD 60, roughly? Yeah, 
But does it talk about things in AD 50 to AD 60? No, it talks about things in AD 30, right? To AD 40, somewhere in there, right? So that's the same with Nahum. When was it written? Well, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we don't know the historical context that it was written in and about. Does that make sense? So that's what our focus is, and that's what we want to learn. It's interesting, these are the minor prophets, cause, so they're less important, right? There's 12 of them. Are minor prophets less important? Why are they called minor? Because they're small. That's the only reason. It's they're small. Is no, Jonah just as important as Isaiah? Yes. Let me ask you this. Did God, did, did God say more important things to Isaiah than he said to Jonah? Here's the question. Did God say more important things to any of these prophets than what he has said today through his word? No, they're all equally important. So here we have this, and I love this. Do you, do you like this? Is this helpful? You can see everything where Isaiah overlaps these guys, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets here. Uh, and Anyways, I think it's very, very helpful in what we are going to be studying. So, God used Jonah to preach to Nineveh, and they repented. God had mercy on Nineveh, and his plan of why he had mercy on them is understood in how God used Nineveh to discipline the wicked Jewish people of Israel. Furthermore, to warn similar wickedness found in Judah. So, the reality is Assyria, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, comes down and sacks, and we'll, we'll see the wars there a little, little later on, but destroys Israel. Do you think that would make Judah, to, oh, I better wake up. I better repent. Because we know Israel's in the north and Judah's in the south, right? And here our brothers are now sacked. And by the way, how many tribes are in Israel during the time of their separation? Ten tribes. Ten of the twelve tribes are in Israel. Two, only two are found in the southern part of Judah. And here, most of Israel then, reality, most of Israel is Israel. And now Israel has been sacked by Assyria. But Judah doesn't wake up. Because approximately 100 years later, guess what? Judah is sacked by Babylon. It's, it's crazy. It's like, why doesn't the country wake up? I've asked that same question every day for the last three years. Right? The application is very clear. And it gets worse because you will not believe what the king of Israel and the king of Judah do to their own people. Do you remember Hamas? There's no difference. Where do you get that information? Just wait. Scripture is quite revealing. So here we are in the Middle East, right? Why is it that everything happens in the Middle East? Why is it that this little podunk sandbox is so important to the world? Israel. And people would laugh at you when you say that, but that is true. Yeah, and they want to get rid of Israel. Why do you want to get rid of it? It's so small. What's the point? What is, what is the deal? Let me show you something that I think we miss many times. This is the known world. There are some outliers. Yes, I get that. But this is basically the known world. How many understand that? You've got Italy here, and you've got the whole... And the reason it's the known world is where did humanity begin? Garden of Eden, somewhere in this vicinity. Why do we know that? The Tigris and the Euphrates, right? So somewhere, this is, it was called the Fertile Crescent. Now it's called the Dust Bowl. True? Or the desert. So this is Iraq, this is Iran, Israel's down in here, just so you have your, your bearing Syria right here. 
Reality is, this is the Fertile Crescent. This is where it all began. Who was a ruler before Assyria? And one of the greatest rulers of the world is ever known. Nebuchadnezzar is found down here in Babylon. He was after Nineveh. After Assyria, sorry. How about before Assyria? Okay, Solomon was for a time, but his, to be honest with you, his land was so small, but extremely important, and we'll get to that. The, he would never really be called the ruler of the world, per se. Egypt was the ruler of the world. They were the ones that were in charge. Now, watch this. You have the start of mankind here, the rulers of the world here. How do you get from here to here? How are the spices coming out of the Goshen or the Nile River or the spices and the sugars and the, I mean, the, the rocks, the gems? The, how, how in the world are these precious things going to get up here? They have to go through Israel. They have to. This is I-35. All right? Does that make sense? This is the major highway that brings food and all things in the world. You say, well, what about a ship? Well, that's the problem. Assyria, at one time, didn't even have ports. Why? Israel had them. Why was Israel so important to them? So then, because after the land travel, you need then water travel, right? But both are important. How many would agree with that? Both are important. So this is extremely valuable to world commodities. After God used Nineveh to dis discipline Judah in 722, God then disciplined Nineveh in 612. This is where Nahum comes in, so both ne Jonah and Nahum express how God's character works with Nineveh. Now let me ask you, did God's character remain consistent with Jonah and Nahum and how he dealt with, Israel, with Nineveh? That was the point the guy was trying to make, right? The, the professor from Talbot. Don't say God's fickle and just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, right? God is always consistent. His plan is perfect. Therefore, the reason we can say, absolutely without a doubt, the reason Nineveh was destroyed by God a hundred and some years after Jonah is because during that hundred years, in God's plan, Nineveh was the tool to use to destroy Israel and wake, hopefully, Judah up or express his judgment of, you guys are wicked, horrible. Do you know that the Ninevites, how wicked they were, we know what they were. Israel kings were the same way. And we're going to read about it. Judah kings were the same way. And we're going to read about it in the text. Judah and Israel are currently, during this context, two separate entities. The land of Israel is incredibly rich with commerce. Their coffers are full because they've got the roads. You want to pass through my land? Then pay me. How do you think Assyria is going to like that? How many love going through Chicago when you're on your way out east? There's two things you hate. The traffic and the tolls. I don't want to drive over there. And, and then, yeah, now that's electronic and it's like confusing to us, uh, to me anyways, this country boy. Regardless, they hated this. If I'm going to take power over the world, if I'm going to be world power like I'm to be, then I have to own Israel. They got to be gone. <clears throat> so both Jonah and Nahum express how God's character is consistent with Nineveh. It's just the timing is different. In Jonah, God has mercy. 70, 780 to 750s. Judah's experiences God's judgment by, or Israel experiences God's judgment by Nineveh between 719 and 722. 
In Nahum, God sends judgment to Nineveh by Babylon. That happens in 612. God sends Babylon to discipline the wickedness of Judah in 586. I did that for one reason, and, and, and we'll get to This country, first of all, is Egypt a godly country? No, it falls off the map. I mean, it doesn't totally destroy or implode, but it is no longer king. Assyria is. How did Assyria become king of that land? Anybody know? All right, I will make sure we know that eventually. Here's the reality. Assyria became king of the world, in essence. And there was something going on down here. Israel and Judah were both wicked countries. So what does God do to wicked countries? He starts with Israel. He conquers it by a wicked city of Nineveh. They come in and they destroy him. They come in twice or three times, depending on the historical aspect you're looking at. So they're destroyed. So now you just have Judah, and you have Assyria, and Assyria now is growing. Assyria, by the way, includes Babylon. All of that's Assyrian. These are vassal places. How many know what that means? So after the wickedness of Israel, and Israel then is judged by God, what happens to Syria? It became wicked after their repentance, and it's therefore judged by God because one of their vassals, the, I'm not even seeing it, Babylon comes over to Nineveh and destroys it. I can't even see that. It's too small. Destroys it. Judges. God judges them. By the way, does God then judge Judah because it's so wicked. It does in 586. Does God then judge Babylon? Yeah, it does. Does God then judge those who the Persians? Does God judge the Grecians? Does God judge He over and over? It's wake up, people. I will not put up with wickedness, especially, and here's the key, and I think it's key throughout this thing, especially wickedness against the innocent. And we will find that out throughout our morning, our warning work here. So, at this point, I'm, it's a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, the dates of that existence is from six, 920 BC to 722 BC when it's destroyed. Finally, after the second or third time, Assyria defeats Samaria, and it's done. Samaria is their capital. First king was who? Who was the first king? Jeroboam. The southern kingdom of Judah, that's south. Uh, uh, actually, if you go to the, uh, here's a good way of putting it. Just above J Jerusalem is this area called Samaria. How many understand that? It's not very far apart. Samaria and Jerusalem are the separating points, if you will. There's not, I bet you it's 30 miles, if that, maybe less, between those two. And we'll show you a map and explain that again. But the dates of their existence, obviously, are 920 B.C., same as because when Jeroboam was king of the northern tribe, the king of the southern tribe, Rehoboam. And who were they? Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Sons, brothers, right? They're brothers. Their capital city is Jerusalem. So, here's what it looks like. Assyria destroys Israel. The date is 722. God uses Assyria to destroy Israel. God uses Babylon to destroy Syria. 626 and 609. There's another date. We'll get to it. That they, it, It's hard to do two dates, right? What happens is they go in there and they, they probe, they, they kill, and then they come back, and then they go again two years later and wipe them out or whatever. That's why these dates somewhat are flexible. Babylon destroys Assyria. 
Babylon then destroys Judah, 586. Persia destroys Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, right? Because the Medes are kind of on board with Babylon for a while before the Persians come in. And we'll see that. And by the way, there's so much information here. We're going to take 1,000 years and dive into a half hour. So the, the Medes and the Babylonians came and destroyed Nineveh. It wasn't just one. It was a conglomeration of two of them that went in and destroyed Nineveh. The Persians then destroyed Babylon. Greece then, and, and you'll know this, where's the Greece and Persia war? What, 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 what's that? Give me some. We love those words. If you own a gun and if you've seen the Manolabe, I don't even know what Manolabe is. How many have ever seen Manolabe? Man, no one knows what that is. How many have ever seen, how many have ever heard this? Come and get it. Okay, come and get it was the Grecian words against the Persians. I've got a sword, you come and get it. And they did, they wiped them out, right? They, they, they won the war. Greece beats Persia, and then, and by the way, Greece, Persia, that's where the 300 are. Do you remember the 300? Same, same time frame. And then you have Rome that basically rules the world from 146 B.C. on. They are the king. Now, why is all that important? It's important because the whole point of Nahum, or Nahum is that God will not put up with wicked countries. He will not. Even though we've got books like Habakkuk say, why are you waiting so long to destroy? Like all these other prophets, why, why, why are you being so patient? Kill them all. Because it's not us that's in charge, it's God. And God's going to use these nations for a reason. Russia, China, North Korea are not accidents. There is a reason they exist in this world today. And I will tell you this. This great Christian country called America is a wicked nation. And its judgment is going to happen if it continues down this road and does not repent. And to be honest with you, Nineveh is much like America. Did Nineveh repent? Did all of them repent? Could you say that Nineveh was a God-fearing nation or city, which is the capital of Assyria? At the moment, Noah or Jonah, Jonah came into town. Here they are, 150 years later, wiped off the map because they went right back to their wicked ways. And we're going to see that not only with Nineveh, but we're going to see that with Judah. We're going to see that with Israel, and it will make you sick. I'm almost embarrassed to put it up here, but I think it's important that we do. These people were nasty, horrible, wicked, wicked people. So, Assyria, what happened? The ten northern tribes were carried away by Assyria in 734, 732, and 22. 722 is the number. That's when it was completely destroyed. That's when they actually were able to take Syria, uh, uh, Samaria, the capital city of Israel. I'm going to understand that. That's actually when it happened. That's what our number is going to be throughout the rest of the, week, of the, of the time in Nahum. 722 is the total destruction of Israel. And by the way, one can argue 722 is the last time we understand Israel as God's nation in this area. You say, what about 1948? You know what? That was the ten tribes of Israel at that time, and they were dispersed everywhere. 722. That's the number. So here it's a little easier to see the names here. Babylon's down in the southern part, and Nineveh's up here on the north. By the way, very on this, I don't know if this is the Tigris. Yes, the Tigris and the Euphrates are right here that dump into the Persian Gulf. By the way, isn't it interesting? Baghdad... Do you see that? Right next to Babylon. We all know Baghdad. 
right? Because of recent things. So what took place after Jonah preached in Nineveh and Nineveh repented? Well, the king, who was not the king at the time of Jonah, this king and his very important king, Figleth Pilisar III. Obviously, there's a one and a two, and we're going to talk about one here eventually. In your Bibles, you'll see in 1 Chronicles 5, it talks about King Pol. Pol. So, the Son of God stirred up the spirit of Pol. That's what the Chronicles said. King of Syria. The spirit of Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Halah, Habar, Hara, River Gozen, to this day, the day of the writing of his proclamation. Now, as you can see, they would go down and destroy, and there's a couple different, see these numbers? There's different timings of that they came down. So Nineveh, or Assyria, Nineveh, the capital city, came down to the east side of the River Jordan. They did not cross the River Jordan. I'm going to understand that. And they destroyed what was on the east side. What does that look like? By the way, it was 740 B.C. that it started. This is what it looked like. So you have the ten tribes right here. All of the ten tribes, and you have two down here. We already discussed that. Now you can see it. So it's a good image in your head. They came down, Gad, Manasseh, half of Manasseh. Well, that's easy. That's over here, right? Uh, Gadites. Gad, Manasseh, and the, there's one more. Reubenites probably too. So during Jonah's time, the reason he was so angry with Nineveh, which is over here, is because Assyria would probe their areas to see what is weak. I'm going to understand that. They would go in and raid and say, hey, we just walked right in. Just like Hamas did with Israel. They just walked right in and, and committed genocide. Right? Once you know the weak points, what are you going to do next? Hey, guys, come on. I got it. They were probing because they wanted all this land. And by the way, they, de they destroyed Damascus. All this they destroyed. But what for our point and for our information, those are the three that need to be understood right now. So, any questions? Is this helpful? So I didn't come to church for a history lesson. I know, that's why I love it and hate it. But we have to understand this historical documents. After Tigla Pileser III came this guy, Shalamanzer V. And he's the one that eventually sacked and destroyed Samaria. And we'll talk about the interesting communications between Judah and Tiglath Pileser, and Israel and Tiglath Pileser, and the same with. The second guy and third guy, Shalmanzer and Sargon the second. Second Kings chapter seven says, in the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And here's what happens: once you could, once you would destroy a area, country, what did the Assyrians do? Well, according to the text, this is what they do, and placed in them. Halah, on the, and on the harbor, and the river goes in, and the cities of the Medes. So, and then what happens is these guys literally put Arabs into all these cities. They literally vacate the land and then put their guys in that they conquered everywhere else or their own people. Does that make sense? That's exactly how they fought their, their, their wars. <clears throat> Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every seer or prophet. Did every prophet tell Israel or Judah to repent? 
that every prophet warned them. Matter of fact, you start with the prophets like Samuel. Did he warn the first king? What are you doing? Did they not? Over and over, God is warning Israel and Judah. And I will tell you this, God is, again, no respecter of persons, amen. He is warning America today through his word. You are a wicked country now. We must need to repent. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 15 through 17, talks about some of these wars. He says, okay, here's the deal, guys. You have despised God's statutes. You have went after false idols. This is word for word, these texts. You can look at them. They went after false idols. They became false. They followed other nations. They abandoned all the commandments. This is, I mean, this is a list inside these verses. They made an Asherah and worshipped it. They served Baal or Baal. Burned their sons and daughters. They sold themselves to do evil. Who is this talking about? We all know this is king, so it's talking about Israel. But how many nations today would this depict? Let me ask you this. How many churches today would fit in this descriptions? Therefore, the Lord was very angry, you think? The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. How? Nineveh. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Say, well, okay, how wicked could they be? Let's look at this king of Israel during this time called Menahem. How many have ever heard of Menahem? What a jerk. Literally. And you will be so angry with this man. Menahem gave Paul a thousand talents of silver. He's the king of Israel. Why would he give Paul? Who is Paul? Tiglath Pilisar III, Nineveh, capital of Assyria, gave Paul a thousand talents of silver. It's been said that what he did was he went around and he asked 50 uh, talents or 50 shekels, something like that, from every rich guy to pay off Tiglath Pilisar. Why? They hadn't yet sacked Samaria, so Menahem paid Tiglath to not conquer Samaria, to leave them alone. A thousand talents of silver. The Bible talks about it this way, to gain his support and strength his own hold on the kingdom. In other words, I know everything else is destroyed, but I got Samaria, so please don't kill me. Here, I'll pay you not to kill me. That's what Menahem did. Oh, but it gets really worse. Before this, this is his last gasp. This comes into view. Menahem you have to understand, he's the one that literally was a general in the Israel's army, and he revolted against the king of Israel and took him out. And he became king for a long time. Now, then Menahah smote Tipsha. That is one of Israel's own cities. Are you following this? Menahem smote Tipsha and all who were therein, and the borders thereof from Terza, because they opened not to him. In other words, you killed our king. Why? No, that's not right. 
You didn't gain the kingship correctly. You're not from God. You literally were a general in the army and didn't like the guy, so you killed him and became their king. We don't accept you as a king. So what did they do? Therefore, he smote it. He went in there and sacked the city. But not only did he sack the city, he played the Hamas card. Listen to what he says. And all the women therein who were with child were ripped up. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, that's not the only verse and that's not the only king that did that. Tiglath Pilsar. Tiglath Pilsar, the first, told you we come to him. The Bible says, or, he's got a poem written about him. He slits the womb of a pregnant woman. He blinds the infants. He cuts the throats of their strong ones. This is a song, a poem that the king of Nineveh sang, was written for him, and the people would sing. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. This is another passage. And when Hazael saw the prophet weeping, he asked, why does my Lord weep? Elisha, he's talking about. Elisha answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire. You will kill their young men with a sword. You will dash in pieces their little ones and rip up their pregnant women. Same thing. Amos chapter 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, so these are the Ammonites, and of four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. 2 Kings 15, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones. So exactly what Meneha did to his people Shalomaz is going to come and do to them. It's the exact same thing. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed into pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Let me ask you. During the invasion, Maneha punished Topah, all the inhabitants of the town and all of its whole district. And what did he do? He ripped open the pregnant women. Let me ask you this. What is the difference between what those nasty, wicked kings did and God absolutely destroyed them and what Hamas did? What's the difference? You say, yeah, they're wicked people. What a jerk. What a bad people. Wicked, bad, bad, bad. What about us today? This same, it's, and this is why I said it before. God cannot stand when a country will not protect the innocent. He won't. I've just given you four verses. And then I'm going to tell you what happens to those people. They're wiped off the face of the earth. What about Ahaz of Judah? So we've talked about Israel. We know why they were destroyed, right? We saw it. They don't protect the innocent. They actually kill their own innocent. Just like all the, the ruckus around them. <laughs> the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 16, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. This is the king of Judah, the brother of Israel. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. They took the temple treasury. And in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Syria. So the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away to exile to Kerr and put Raisin to death. And then what did he do? Not only did he destroy Damascus and take it, he then destroyed Israel and took it. And who paid for it? The temple treasury and the treasuries found in the palace. 
funded by Judah. How many are getting the historical content of this horrendous time in history and the ruthlessness of people involved? Let's talk about Nineveh because that's what Jonah does. Nineveh was a huge city. It was a beautiful city. The capital of Assyria Empire was Nineveh, located on the eastern banks of the Tigris River in present-day northern Iraq. It was one of the most important cities in the ancient Near East and served as the political and cultural center of the empire. Remember, Jonah, we, we found that Nineveh was given mercy by their repentance. And then they were used by God to be a tool to destroy Israel in 722. <clears throat> Nineveh does not last, and this is Nahum. Nineveh did the, all these atrocities against all the people of the world. They're known as the most wicked, ruthless, barbaric country in the world, peoples. And one of their vassal cities, Babylon, was not impressed and have had it. So they come up, both the Mede king, and I don't know how to pronounce that, Saxarais, and Babylon king Nabopolassar. Who is that? And what does that sound like, by the way? Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know why it sounds like Nebuchadnezzar? That's his daddy. That's his daddy. Babylon king of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar there I go. Because we only know Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar, they rise up against this brutal dictatorship, if you will, and go and sack Nineveh. They destroy it. And that's what Nahum is all about, the destruction. And it's going to get very de detailed in the text. That happens in 612. By the way, how do we know that happens? We have... We have a whole cuneiform, you know what that is, right? Tablet of stone written down, the fall of the fall of Nineveh Chronicle. It's like, it, we actually had that in our present. That was found in the 19th century, by the way, over in Iraq. According to the Babylonian clay tablet discovered in the 19th century, named the Fall of Nineveh Chronicle. There was a bitter 12-year struggle between Babylon and Assyria, as well as civil wars in Assyria itself. They described that in the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians defeated the Assyrians' army and marched up the river, sacking Mani, Syria, Babi, and then eventually they sacked Nineveh. The conflict was renewed the next year when the Assyrians mustering their army and driving the Babylonians back to Tacticurtain, Nebuchadnezzar stationed his army in the fortress of Tacticurtain, and the two armies fought there the next year. The Assyrians were beaten and retreated to Assyria. The Babylonians then allied themselves with the Medes and the Scythians. How many of them would love to be called a Scythian after we know what Scripture says about them, right? The Median, the Median army took Traverso near Nineveh and encamped nearby. They then attacked the city of Asher with the Babylonian text recounting how in 614 BC their Median ally destroyed Asher's temple and sacked the, temp sacked the city. But their army did not reach the city of Nineveh until after the plundering had been done. In 612 BC, the Babylonians mustered their army again and joined with the Mede king, Sarazarxes, encamping against Nineveh. They laid siege to the city for three months in August, finally broke through the defense and began plundering and burning the city. The major factor in the city's downfall was the Medes. The Assyrian king, Sinshar Ishkun, was killed in the siege. His brother Ashar Ebalt II was made king of Syria. He refused to submit, however, and successfully found, fought his way out of Nineveh. 
and basically he wanted to keep Assyria alive, so he went and founded another capital called Haran. And by the way, the capital city of Nineveh changes to Haran and two others, I believe. And the reason is Babylon kept on destroying them. So one guy gets free and he puts up the capital in a different city. That one gets destroyed. Again, he just keeps going again. All right. So Nahum, God's mercy to his people. How? Because God judges the wicked. God judges the wicked. And we see it over and over and over and over again. Now, I'm going to get... Uh, I'm going to go back to... Any questions? Let me start that first. Again, I'm not going to say I'm sorry because I'm not. But this is important, the context. How many understand basically what's going on that sets up us understanding Nahum. It's a lot of evil going on. So, the, no questions on the battles or anything. Is there a lot of historical content there? Okay, are you upset? Too bad. <laughs> All right. So the text starts out by this Nahum. From where? Elkin? Elkton? Where is Elkton? So there are many conflicting reports of where Elkton is. You can go to five people and you'll have eight different opinions. What does that tell you? No one knows. We are going to view this as if Elton is Capernaum. And here's why. How many remember having a class with a certain archaeologist here at our church? <clears throat> the one thing that has made him successful in archaeology in the Middle East is this. If there's a church on it, or if it's known in the community that that's that, it's probably right. I'm going to understand that. Because it started out being a post or a pillar, and then the church was put on, and then it, it, it just never goes away from the storyline. Now, the storyline gets all mungled up, right? But it's probably there. Therefore, in my opinion, do you hear that? In my opinion, because Capernaum is called the city of Nahum, it's probably a pretty good chance that Nahum is from Capernaum on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, matter of fact, by Peter's house. Peter is from Capernaum. So that's how we're going to start next week when we start preaching through Nahum. No questions? Everybody got all the blood, guts, and gore? Okay, so it is written, right? Nahum is, uh, is, is preaching judgment against Nineveh. So it happens between 633 and 612, I believe. 633, because we have two things that we know. Um, we know it's after Israel's destruction. And we know it's before... Nineveh's destruction. Does that make sense? So it's right between those. So we have a good idea of the date, of the context, and, and the context is what I just gave you. But thank you. Good question. Let me ask you, is this, do you see already, just by listening to the wickedness, do you see applications today? And I will tell you this, just like Jonah, Job, Habakkuk, and many others, like even David, even Samuel and Jeremiah. We all are human, and we get ahead of God's timing. Listen, folks, God will judge the wicked. 
We don't have to worry about that. That's his business and his business alone. Our job is just to share the gospel with them. Amen? And so let God be God. Let, like like the, the professor from Talbot said, God isn't in a box. Let him be God. You don't know more. We don't know more than God. Amen? Let him be God. He's going to judge the wicked in his time. But in the meantime, we just need to obey him by sharing the love of Christ and serving one another the best we can for his glory. Amen? Makes sense. All right. In just a second, we're going to have a word of prayer if there's no other questions. I don't do this often, but when we start a new book, it's always going to happen. Um, <clears throat> Lord willing. So no questions. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and for your judgment, dear Lord. Your mercy and grace and your discipline. For through those things, we know who you are and we can serve you more intelligently, understanding that you are God and we are not. And therefore, we just will submissively, humbly follow your lead as we serve and love each other and those that are around us that you have placed in our way, that they may come to know you also. Dear Lord, I pray as we preach through Nahum, I pray that we would realize how great of a God you truly are. In your name we pray, amen. So I just want to, that's gone, right? Jeremiah, we're done, right? Are we shut off, Jeremiah?